Well, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to Psalm 37. And as Sam was saying to the kids, this is a wisdom psalm. One of my professors in seminary used to define wisdom as skill in the art of godly living. Uh, wisdom it takes knowledge, it takes our, our understanding of God's Word, and it, and it skillfully applies it to life so that we can actually live in accord with the design uh, that He has set before us. We can, we can live the life that He has given us. That's what wisdom is. It is skill in the art of godly living. And this psalm is a wisdom psalm. It is a psalm that is meant to impart and to nurture wisdom in the people of God. You'll, you'll notice that it's not like a lot of the psalms that we read. Uh, God is actually never addressed directly in this psalm. This is not directly a prayer. It's not directly praise to God. But rather, this psalm is addressed to the righteous. It is addressed to the people of God. And it is meant to instruct them in the way that they ought to live. And he gets us there, similar to last Sunday, he gets us there by, by setting before us two portraits. Now, he doesn't uh, set them side by side as we had last week, but rather the, the two portraits are, are woven together throughout the psalm. But still, we have two contrasting portraits, one of the wicked and one of the righteous. And David believes that seeing these two portraits will shape our lives uh, in such a way that we walk in wisdom, that we walk in the way of the Lord. And so let's look at these two portraits more closely. First, we have a portrait of the wicked. We have a, a portrait of those who act wickedly, those who, who do wrong, those who do not honor God as God. We heard last week about those who, who do not have the fear of God before their eyes. That is who David is, is talking about here. We, we only get hints of their behavior here. Uh, we, we hear that they plot against the righteous, that they walk in their own way, that they, they draw their sword and they bend their bow against the poor and the needy. It's, a, it's a, just hints of the life that they live. They live a life that is self-focused. They are curved in on themselves, as Luther said. They are, they are interested only in their own ambitions, their own desires, and they do whatever they want to, to accumulate to themselves the things things upon which they have set their heart. That is the, the wicked. But what David wants us to see is the outcome of their way of life. He, he acknowledges that it may appear that they are flourishing for a season. We're told in verse 7 that they prosper in their ways. They, they prosper, they, they seem to succeed, even as they are, what does he say, carrying out evil devices. Even as they're doing those things that God has commanded them not to do. Even as they're neglecting the, the weightier matters of the law that, that God has, has called them to. Even in their wickedness, they seem to flourish. Or, or verse 16, he, he says they seem to have an abundance they seem to have more than enough. They aren't worried about making ends meet. They aren't trying to decide whether they're going to buy gas or, or groceries. They seem to have an abundance. They are like the glory of the pasture. Now, if you grew up in the city, sort of like I did, 
The glory of the pasture may not immediately resonate with you, but remember how this image is used throughout the scriptures. What did Jesus say about the glory of the pasture? He said, even Solomon in all of his fine clothes was not dressed as well as the field. Now that sounds strange, I know. We don't always think of it that way. It's weeds, right? But, but the glory of the pasture is magnificent when you see it. When you see the wonder of God's creation, when you see the beauty that God brings forth in a day. And when we see the wicked, it sometimes looks like that. They have the glory of the pasture. As he says in verse 35, the the wicked sometimes spread themselves out like a green laurel tree. They are the very picture of health. They, They dominate the landscape. And we've seen this. We've seen this for ourselves. We don't just have to take David's word for it. We know it's true. We we know that there are times when people who do not honor God, when people who have no regard for the well-being of their neighbor nevertheless seem to prosper, even those who oppress the powerless. It's not just that they don't regard their neighbor, but they actually actively work against their good. They, They take advantage of them for their own benefit, and yet... They seem to flourish even in their wickedness. You you have someone in your mind right now. You you know what I'm talking about. You know that this is true. And this is why the righteous are sometimes tempted to be envious of the wicked. It seems that that their life is going well. It seems that their sins have paid off. It, It seems that they are living the good life. But David wants us to hear him say, it only seems that way. The righteous should not be envious of the wicked. Because their their abundance is a mirage, and the end of their path is destruction. We actually see this in the the image of the pasture that we look at there uh, in in verse 1, and then again in verse 20. He says, fret not because of uh, evildoers, or actually verse 2, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass. They they have the glory of the pasture. They are are arrayed in the the wonder of the the, the wildflowers. They look good, but soon their glory will fade like the grass, will wither like the green herb. And in one way or another, David repeats that again and again and again throughout the psalm. The end of their path is destruction. Verse 9, we're, we're told that the evildoer shall be cut off. He will not ultimately attain his goals. He will seem to be making progress. He will be, seem to be on his way. He will seem to have everything that he needs for a time, but in the end, he will be cut off. Verse 10, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. You will look for him. You will say, hey, wasn't he there just a second ago? You will look for him. And he will be nowhere to be found. Verse 15, though he draw his sword against the poor and the needy, that sword will ultimately pierce his own He may oppress the uh, the marginalized, but ultimately it is his arms that will be broken. Even verse 21, he will borrow and not pay back. We sometimes think that's a reflection on his character. You know, that, that, well, he's the kind of person who borrows and doesn't give it back. 
That, that, that's not actually what David is getting at here. This is, this is not a reflection on his character. This is a, a, a reflection on his condition. He will be the one who has to borrow. He will be the one who has to beg. And he will never be able to pay back. This is not a, 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 a short-term loan of capital to, to, to make some great profit. He will be simply trying to make ends meet. He will borrow and not be able to pay back. And then finally, he brings it all together in verse 38 when he says, The transgressor shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. This is what David wants us to see. The wicked may flourish for a season. They may, they may prosper for a time. They may seem to be spreading themselves out like a green laurel tree. But it is an illusion. The end of their path is inevitably destruction. And this is contrasted throughout the psalm with the, the, the righteous. And you might expect it to be a, a sort of a, a straight one-for-one contrast. Well, okay, if the, if the wicked flourish for a season and then perish, maybe it's that the, the, the righteous suffer now, but in the end there will be glory. There's something of that here, but, but the, the contrast is not exactly one-to-one. The, the picture we get is not of, simply of suffering now and, and, and provision in the age to come, but actually the picture that David gives us of the righteous is more complex than that because what he says is that the righteous have provision now and prosperity in the age to come. The immediate provision may be meager. It may come with some degree of, of difficulty and of, and of suffering, but it is still provision. And in the end, you will have immeasurable abundance. So I want us to look at, look at both aspects of the, the life of the righteous. First, I want to, to consider this provision now. What does David mean when he speaks of them having provision now? Admittedly, he says, uh, they, they may suffer. The upright are paralleled with the poor and the needy in verses 14 and 15. Do you see that? Uh, those two lines are, are parallel to each other. And so the righteous, the upright, are sometimes poor and needy. We, we see a little bit later on that they sometimes fall. They, they sometimes encounter challenges. They sometimes encounter difficulties. In fact, we're told in verse 16 that, that the righteous have but a little. So, so David's not naive here about the, the, the hardships that the righteous sometimes face. He, he knows those well. He's honest about the, the difficulties that the righteous sometimes face in this life. But notice what he says in verse 25. He says, I have been young and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, or his children begging bread. In the days of famine, he says in verse 19, the righteous have abundance. I told you earlier that I was confused by uh, the hymn uh, all, uh, for all the saints when I was a, a kid. I, I was also confused by those verses. I was confused by those verses because they don't seem to be empirically true. <laughs> you know, when, when, when someone says something, you know, you, you want them to be able to demonstrate it. This is a big deal in my house. Like, right? if you make a claim in my house, you better be able to back it up. You better be able to, to prove it or, or my kids will let you know. You know, I will, I will often tell my, my kids after they, they make some claim, I don't think I believe that. That doesn't sound like truth. Where, where's your source? You know, what's your evidence? 
We, we want evidence when people make claims. And when someone says something like this, I've never seen the righteous begging bread, you say, well, I have. What are you talking about, David? What do you, what do you mean? We, we have to ask what David is getting at here because the, the fact of the matter is we have all, every one of us at some point has seen the righteous. We have seen the children of God begging bread. Well, I want you to know that David had two. In fact, David was once the righteous begging bread. Do you remember the story? David running for his life from, from Saul. And, and, and the only bread he can find, the only bread he can have is the, the bread from the tabernacle. I mean, it's, it is bread that, he, that is off limits. And, and he has to uh, ask the priest to sort of set aside, to suspend the rules. God, let us have that bread or we're going to starve. He was once the man begging bread. David knew what it was to beg bread literally. And so what does he mean as he reflects at the end of his life? He says, I was young, now I'm old. He says, look, I'm, I'm reflecting back on a lifetime of experience, and I have never seen the righteous begging bread. He had just forgotten his own experience? I don't think so. I don't think so. David understands that, that, uh, that there's something more than just the literal begging of bread going on here. And what I think David has in mind is this. David is saying that the righteous will never lack what they need to live the life that God has called them to live. Bread is the substance of life. And he says, listen, God will always provide us with everything we need to live the life he has called us to live. In the language of our confession, we will always have everything we need to glorify and enjoy him. We will always have everything we need to do those good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the good works that he has prepared for us, the, the course that he has charted out for us, is not always the, the course that we would choose for itself. It's not always the, the works that we have set our hearts upon. And so sometimes we feel as if we don't have what we need to live the life we want to live. And that's actually true. We don't always have everything we need to live the life we want to live. But... We always have everything we need, everything uh, that is necessary the life that God has given us to live will be ours without fail. John Newton once said, whatever God withholds cannot be needful. If God has not given it to you, it's because you do not need it to do what he's given you to do in this moment. And Brian Chappell makes the point that that applies even to those Christians in the Sudan who are being deprived food by their Muslim neighbors. They are literally without bread, and yet this promise still holds. They have what they need to glorify God in that moment. It's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to the, the king. Our God is able to save us from you, but even if he doesn't, we trust him. We trust him because we don't actually know whether we need deliverance from this flame in this moment or not. We, we don't know what, what good work God has prepared for us to do. We, we don't know how we are going to glorify and enjoy him in this, this moment. But whatever God has for us, we will be able to do it because he will provide us with the strength and the resources, everything we need to glorify and enjoy him, will be ours in this moment. Whatever God withholds cannot be needful. That's what David means when he says, I have never seen the, the righteous begging bread. 
And when you remember that the life of obedience that he is calling us to, that, that the good works that he has prepared for us, when you remember that walking in his way is the good life, is the, the best life, is the life where your, your, your joy and your satisfaction will be full, where you will taste the joy of his salvation, where you will drink deeply of the, the rivers of life, when you remember that the life that he has called you to, even when it is bearing a cross, when you remember that that is the good life, you understand why David can say that even in famine the righteous have abundance. It's not necessarily that they have a secret storehouse of grain. But rather it's that even in their want, they have all that they need. Their joy is full. He's not saying that they will never suffer want or, or lack. He is saying that even when they suffer want or lack, they will be full in feast or famine. The joy of God's salvation will be theirs. Think of what Paul says in the New Testament. He says, the world sees us as possessing nothing, and yet what? We know we possess everything. The world can't see it because the life that we have is, is not the good life as they have defined it in their own minds. And yet David says, the life we have is the good life. It is the life of Abundance. Yes, in the present, in the moment, we may have little. We may seem to lack even necessary resources from the perspective of the world. But we have all that we need to glorify and enjoy Him both now and forevermore. That is the present provision of the righteous. And it is a provision that will one day overflow in material abundance. We're hesitant to say those kind of things, but, but I want you to know there is a sense in which we believe in a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, even a material health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There is, a, there is a day coming when the people of God will experience perfect physical health. Your, your body will be right. It won't hurt anymore. It won't fight against you. It won't undermine you. There's a, there's a day when we, when we will have perfect physical health, and there is a day when we will have abundant material provision. You know, God is the one who made you with the body. God is the one who made material provision necessary. Material, material uh, provision was his idea, and one day he is going to provide it to his children in, in overwhelming abundance. Yes, we do believe in a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Not the one preached by the world. Not the one that says if you just use God's name in the right way and the right formula now, you can have whatever you need right now. As I, as I just said, sometimes in the present we, we experience want in the eyes of the world. We, we lack the resources that we need to live the life they have defined as good. But the reality is that, that even though in the present we sometimes lack, it will not always be so. Notice how David puts it throughout the psalm. He again and again and again speaks of the righteous inheriting the land. A land that was said repeatedly to be flowing with milk and honey. A land of material abundance. A, man, a land that would richly provide for the people of God. Those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land, verse 9. The meek will inherit the land, we read in verse 11. And you, you hear in that uh, the, the, the root of, of Jesus' own statement that the meek will inherit the earth. 
The righteous, those who, 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 not those who are perfect, not those who are sinless, but, but those who are right with God through repentance and faith. The righteous shall inherit the land. Those who wait for the Lord and, and, keep, their, and keep His way, they will be exalted to inherit the land. And throughout the psalm, throughout the Old Testament, the land is the, the, the land promised to the people of God, the land that represents God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. He is saying, listen, my people will inherit the kingdom. That's why Jesus could expand it to the whole earth in the, the New Testament because, because the, the land, that, that, that strip of land in Palestine, that was simply a token. It was simply a, a picture of what God had promised. And the, the image of Daniel, remember, is that that kingdom will one day fill the whole earth. It will not be limited to one geographic location. It will one day fill the whole earth that God's Jerusalem will come down and all of creation will be subsumed. All of creation will be made into the kingdom of God. And that is the inheritance that belongs to God's people. You have an inheritance coming. It's, it's not millions of dollars from some uncle you didn't know you had. That's not your hope for the future. It's better. The kingdom of the living God is yours. And it will be yours in full one day. We have an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being kept for it through faith. This is what David wants us to see. He wants us to see this, this promise, this promise of, of present provision, everything you need to, to live the life you've been called to live now, and of future prosperity. And when you contrast that, the, this, this vision of the righteous, of the present provision, the future prosperity of the righteous, when you, when you contrast that with the, the coming destruction of the wicked, David thinks the, the conclusions are rather obvious. This has obvious and profound implications for the way that we ought to live here and now. But if the, if the implications are so obvious, why do they not always manifest in our lives? They do not always manifest in our lives because if we're honest, we have to admit that we, we struggle to believe this. We, we say it, we're familiar with the words, the meek will inherit the earth, yeah, yeah. We know it, but we struggle to believe it. And I suspect that we, we struggle to believe it for at least a few reasons. We, we're constantly coming before God saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that unbelief manifests in at least two ways. First, we, we struggle to believe that the good life actually consists and doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do. When we daydream, when we, when we think about the future, when we think about the life that we would have, that we would, that would satisfy, doing the good works that God prepared for us to do today isn't usually at the top of the list. It's not where our minds immediately go, but, but we, we have bought into the lies of the world. We have bought into the lies of Satan. We have, we have believed that, that there is happiness down some other avenue. We have gone in search of cisterns that can hold water when the fountain of living water was offered to us. We struggle to believe that the good life consists in doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do. Our, our image of the, 
the good life is different, and so therefore we get bitter when, when God doesn't follow our script. We get anxious. We, we get angry. Having everything we need here and now to glorify and enjoy Him doesn't really seem like having an abundance in famine. And so we struggle to, to see the goodness of what God has promised to us. And not only do we, do we struggle to see the, the goodness of our present condition, but we, we also struggle to see the future. We, we can't see it. We, we, we don't see our inheritance. We, we don't see the destruction of the wicked. Rather, we see their present prosperity. And so we struggle to walk by faith and not by sight. Isn't it so much easier to, to believe what's right in front of your eyes? It's the way that we are wired. We struggle to take God at his will, word. So what do we do? How, how, do, we, how do we overcome these, these obstacles? Well, it can't simply be a matter of the will. We can't just will ourselves to believe it. <laughs> we can't just simply uh, you know, say, well, well I'm, I'm just going to try harder. It doesn't work. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark, rather faith is entrusting ourselves to the one who has proven faithful time and time and time again. So how do we cultivate our faith? How do we fight against unbelief? We do it by coming to these psalms. We do it by searching the scriptures, we, we do it by, by, by letting the word of God, his revealed will throughout the ages, we, we do it by letting that word dwell in us richly. You see, God understands that we need to come back again and again and again to the things we believe. It's, it's, you've heard me say it before, but it's why we have that confession of faith every Sunday. We, we are a people who confess a faith, and we need to confess it again and again and again. We need to return to the things that we believe again and again and again. And not things that we just have tried hard to believe, but things that we believe because we have seen the faithfulness of God. God throughout history has proven himself faithful over and over and over again. From the beginning, he has worked for the good of his people. And from the beginning, he has cut off the life of the wicked. We, we, we see this throughout the, the scriptures. Think about God working for the good of his people. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth, and they were good. <laughs> And it was man's rebellion that brought sin and death into the world. But even when man had rebelled, God immediately clothed his people with garments. He provided the covering that they need. And he allowed the land to continue producing food, even though they had rebelled against him. Yes, there will now be thorns and thistles. Yes, it would now require the sweat of their brow. But God did not allow them to go hungry. He was a God who continued to provide for the life of his people. And he didn't just allow them to eke out a meager existence. He, he promised that one day he was going to make it all new. And he, and he called a man named Abram to himself and he said, I'm going to make you into a, a great nation. I'm going to give you a land and I'm going to give you a people. And yes, it seemed that that promise was not ever going to be kept because Abraham was old. He was, he was 100 years old. His wife was 90. And yet God gave them the child of the promise. He kept his 
promises. Yes, they had to wait. Yes, they had to walk by faith and not by sight. But God kept his promises. And then he rescued Abraham's children from Egypt after 400 years of of slavery. He, He heard their cries. And he brought them out. And he brought them out of Egypt. And he brought them to the promised land. And even when they refused to go in, he didn't let their sin and their rebellion put an end to his promises. But rather, well, he made them wander for 40 years and then he brought the next generation in. He gave them the land under the the leadership of of Joshua. And eventually that, that people was established as a kingdom and David was established as their king upon the throne. And even though David's sin was great and the sin of his children was great, David's line sat upon the throne until Babylon came and seemingly brought an end to the promises of God. But God would not allow his plans to be thwarted. What did he do? He brought forth David's greater son. He gave the king. The king who will reign forever. He gave the priest who would never die and need to be replaced. He gave the prophet who is the very enfleshment of God's word. He kept his promises. He sent us Jesus and through Jesus Christ he has rescued us from the fear of death. Through Jesus Christ he has rescued us from the condemnation of the law. Through Jesus Christ he has brought us into glory and he will one day give us the kingdom. That is what God has done. That is God's faithfulness and we see it again and again and again and we taste it even in our own experience. God has been faithful to his promises. And he has been faithful to his threats. We see the stories of his judgment sprinkled throughout. We see see sprinkles, uh, we see the the threat of of judgment coming uh, manifest in various ways. We, We saw it in the flood. We saw it in the destruction of the Egyptian army. We saw it in the conquest of of Canaan. This is is God's final judgment, breaking into time as as a foretaste. A picture of what will happen to the wicked. And yet, we have not yet seen it in full. And we sometimes wonder about that. We wonder, God, where are you? We we heard it in the psalm last Sunday. God, where are you? When are you going to deal with these people? And yet we know that God is not slow to keep his promises, but rather he is holding back his judgment. Because today is the day of his salvation. But do not let his present kindness fool you. There is a coming judgment. There is a wrath to come. The end of the wicked will be destruction. You can go your way for a while. But if you walk away from the Lord, there is no other hope. And so as the righteous, we can cling to our our present promises, the promise of, of the present provision and the future abundance. Or we can believe the lies of Satan and find ourselves lapping at the mud at the bottom of a broken cistern that holds no water. A life that ultimately leads to death and destruction. This is what David wants us to see. And and when you see it, 
When, when you come and you, you, you allow God to open your eyes to the wonder of who he is and what he's doing, to his faithfulness to his people and to his, his wrath against the, the wicked. When you allow, when you see God for who he is, David says, the, the, the way that we ought to live is obvious. I haven't given myself any time to, to unpack this, but just, just look briefly at, at what David says here. He gives us both things not to do and things that we are to do. First, what we're, we're not to do, we're not to fret, we're not to be anxious. <laughs> we're, we're not to be anxious about what the, the wicked have and we don't. We're not to be envious of them. And we're certainly not to, to give ourselves to the, the wrath that seeks to take by force what we think is rightfully ours. We are to put those responses to death by the Spirit through the Word. We, we are to fight against those sinful emotions, those sinful desires. We are to be putting them to death. And rather, what are we to do? We are to be trusting the Lord and doing good. Trust the Lord. Delight yourself in Him. Delight yourself in the salvation that is, that is yours. And commit yourself to Him. Commit to following His ways, trusting that, that He will be with you as you go and do the good works that He has prepared for you to do. Do the good works that He gives you opportunity to do. Because that is the good life. And that is the life that will finally overflow in the abundance of the kingdom. The righteous will inherit the land. Look again how, how David ends this psalm. He says, mark the blameless. Mark them. Put your eyes on them. See them for who they are. Mark the blameless and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. And their, their future is in the land. Their future is in the kingdom of God. The wicked flourish for a moment, but it's an illusion. It is the righteous who have abundance, even in famine, and who will one day inherit the land. And because that is our future in Christ, that is the future for all who have received and rested upon Him alone for their salvation, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in your goodness. And we rejoice in the good that you have worked for your people. Open our eyes, Father, that we might see you, that we might see your faithfulness, and that we might see your wrath, and that we might walk in wisdom. Father, train us in the way that we should go. We ask humbly in Jesus' name. Amen.